2: with Patricia Messenger on C103.
4: And a very good morning to you. It is a bit miserable out there so do be careful and we're already getting some calls in on road conditions, flooding for example in Kerry Pike heading towards the city and that is causing delays so be careful if you are venturing out there's a lot of surface water around as well and I mentioned when I was on with Simon about potholes and a number of potholes will have appeared overnight and potholes that have always been there are now full of water so it's more difficult to see particularly if you're driving in an area that you don't normally drive in so you do need to be careful. Mary heard me mention potholes and said Patricia the pothole at the bridge in Mallow is now so dangerous it is getting deeper by the day that pothole has been there with a while. Cork County Council please take notice. Pothole at the bridge in Mallow. Would you ever go out and sort it out and uh, fix it? And Jamie has been tweeting at C103 Cork this morning to say can't believe the number of motorists who are who gamble, gamble on a changing amber slash red light in Cork this morning. I just almost got wiped out from a motorist who wanted to drive through on a red light after I had stopped anybody else experiencing uh, this. And that in when driving conditions are perfect, and you've got perfect road conditions and perfect visibility that's extremely dangerous for people to be taking a risk on the amber slash red light. But to do it when you have driving, tricky driving conditions like you have this morning is absolutely nuts. Uh, I'm glad to hear you're OK, uh, Jamie. But just to everybody else, please, guys, can you just take it easy out there? Uh, it really there not idyllic driving conditions. Now, on the programme uh, this morning, we will, funnily enough, be discussing driving because we'll be hearing later on about a all to the SatNAV companies to stop sending large vehicles down very narrow roads and to be careful when they're sending them through towns, for example, that can be very tricky bends to negotiate in some of our rural towns and villages. And I suppose the SatNAV, if they aim to send people the quickest route and almost as the crow flies, do the SatNAVs pick up that some of these? some of our road network was never designed obviously for any of these HTVs and are the SATNAVs aware of them. Somebody is saying that in relation to SAT navs that they heard on some other radio programme that there is a specific one for trucks but it sounds like some of the truck drivers are not using the ones that are set up for trucks and that they're using the normal sat-navs instead. Maybe they're doing it due to cost, says this texture. And when I was doing some research about the sat-nav companies last night, seemingly with some of them, no, not with all of them, but with some of them, the HGVs or the bus drivers can put in the specifications of their vehicles. And then the sat-nav will recalculate the route. So some of them are aware of more narrow roads or maybe very tricky corners that a very large HGV may not be able to negotiate. But it seems whether not all HGV's uh, drivers are aware of it or they're not inputting the information. I don't know, but we've had some situations where trucks end up getting stuck. Uh, And then, of course, that leads to all kinds of complications and nightmares for Vehicles behind and you end up with with gridlock in some areas. So something needs to be done. So we will discuss that on the programme uh, today. Hearing about money confiscated as part of Garda investigations has gone missing. And there was it was it's more than a dozen cases of this money going missing from guarder stations. I think it's over a three-year uh, period, and we're going to be talking about uh, that. I think a number of people are going to be very surprised to hear that that can happen. That money that gets confiscated goes into a guarder station. You assume goes into some kind of a secure location or a safe. How can it possibly uh, go missing? We'll discuss that. Should the go- should the government stop banks from selling farm loans onto vulture funds? Now I imagine everybody would say absolutely vulture funds should have nothing at all to do with farm businesses because if a a loan on a farm that was with a bank It sold on to a vulture fund the vulture fund just sees that as a profit they need to make a profit so therefore they need to sell it on they I'm assuming will have no understanding that if you sell the farm out from under a farmer you might leave him with his home that if you decide to sell the farmland out or split up the farm in any way then that farm no longer becomes viable not going to be able to make make a profit profit, so you have to hope in hell of that farmer ever being able to pay back the loan so it needs to be looked at how much of it is going on at the moment I certainly know I've seen I don't know whether it's happened here in Cork but I would You certainly read it on, on the papers of farms up the country where hedge funds came in and they were trying to sell it off and there was huge local opposition and locals got together because I remember reading one story and it kind of reminded me of John B. Keane's play The Field and how local people got together making sure that nobody else would buy the land and I take it that would happen all over the country the farming community are very good to stick together and support each other. We know when things go wrong, we know when there's bad weather for example or when there's a fodder crisis, we see that wonderful metal approach where farmers will help out other farmers in good times but they also and particularly do it in uh, bad uh, times so vulture funds when it comes to farmlands are going to be uh, discussed. One of my favourite charities is the Christmas Shoebox Appeal that I've been doing for the last number certainly for as long as Marcia has come to live with us I got involved in the Shoebox Appeal always around her midterm break uh, from school and would use it as one of the activities that we would do on, on a particular day and we'd pack up all the little items into the shoebox and she gets involved with helping me when we go to the shop and obviously being being deafblind, she's got to feel the items and I'm, I'm doing my best to explain to her. I don't even, even know if she realises what we do with the shoebox but she quite happily every year helps me to do it and quite happily allows me to hand over the shoebox and she knows that it goes away but she'd have no understanding of where it goes uh, to and of course it goes to countries all over the world, a lot of the Eastern Bloc uh, countries and a lot of the African uh, countries. And I certainly, in March's home country of Belarus, would have seen those shoeboxes in action. I was never part of the trip that went over to hand out the shoeboxes. What a wonderful! wonderful trip that must be and I always think the people that do the volunteers that do get the chance uh, to go on those trips are truly blessed you must come away with your heart bursting with love and appreciation for our country to think that it was Irish people packed up all of those shoeboxes and then you see the joy when the shoebox is handed out to a child that has absolutely nothing the closest I got to seeing the shoebox appeal in action was while in Belarus one year I went to visit an orphanage and I was uh, one of the little girls wanted me to show me her bedroom where she was sleeping. And I was using it as the opportunity to see what was needed and what was the bedding like and did they need duvets, etc. So I went with her to her bedroom and she was showing showing me her bedroom and she had a little locker beside her bed. And in the locker was the wrapped shoebox and through a translator I was asking when she got it she'd got it about five years previously Um, there was nothing left in it all the items were long since had gone even though the little teddy bear was still on the bed but she'd kept the shoebox it was a bit battered and torn and you could see where she had got some sellotape to try to tape up and keep the wrapping paper around it but it was a much treasured item the empty shoebox And it just, you know, it made me realise these children have absolutely nothing and it doesn't even need to cost a lot of money if you get your children involved. In the project, you can ask them to hand over maybe some item that they have, maybe, a, you know, a, a little teddy bear that they no longer play with. And it, remember, everything has to fit in a shoebox. So it's all very small items. And, you know, you can put in things like a bar of soap or a toothbrush and a toothpaste. It really doesn't have to cost a lot of money at all. And then put in some little treats and little sweets just to, to pack it all up. Anyway, uh, we'll talk about the Christmas shoebox appeal a little bit later on uh, today because the closing date for this year's appeal is fast approaching they obviously have to get it in to do all the checking of everything in the boxes and then ship them all out to the various uh, countries and then it is Tuesday so Joe Heffernan will be joining us and uh, Joe will talk with us uh, about suicide bereavement uh, later on on the programme so a lot to get through between now and 1 o'clock today as always your thoughts and comments welcome Throughout the Morning This is the Court Today replay on C103 We've already mentioned this morning that there's some quite tricky driving conditions out there and there's a lot of surface water and there is some spot flooding around and you do need to drive. care. Okay. when well, Mary and Mallow was on to say, Patricia, would you remind drivers to slow down and to think of pedestrians when they're out and about driving this morning? Earlier Mary was on the Park Road in Mallow and she saw a dry guy driving and there was some flooding on the road. He splashed water from the side of the road onto a young student who was on the footpath walking to school. The young guy will now be soaking all day because he got a real uh, drenching. Drivers need to be aware of flooding on the side of the road near the footpath and just be careful. Don't be soaking someone. And God help that poor young fella heading off to school soaking wet. Hopefully the school uh, looked after him. Thank you for that, Mary. Now, I'm glad somebody sent this in because this was a programme that I watched last night. And I wonder, did many others watch it? It was a documentary uh, called We Need to Talk About Mam," And it was on last night. It was Brendan Courtney, who is a fashion designer and a TV presenter. And it was a follow up to a fantastic program that Brendan Courtney did two years ago now was it oh no it was uh, 2017 or last year my apologies where they did a programme called we need to talk about dad and that story was to do with Brendan Courtney's father who had uh, just suffered his second stroke and the second stroke was severely disabling uh, stroke and they were going through the possibility that Brendan's dad would need full time care and Brendan's dad and the mum and the rest of the family got involved and they ran this programme we need to talk about dad and struck a chord with so many people now in in the end um his dad died actually the following june of last year so roll on now a year after his father's death he's doing a follow-up documentary called we need to talk about mam and this was the program that aired last night which is looking at at his mother who is now a widow and looking at trying to plan for her future, so the mother Nula and Brendan, some of the other family members, but it was very much the documentary last night was very much about Brendan Courtney and his mother Nula, and taking a look at various options of what Nula could do. Nula is now living in this four bedroomed house she has a son she has one son living with the moment, but brendan's idea is that when the son moves out you know, you're gonna be in this big house on your own, you know, mad, you need to sell up kind kind of a thing. Anyway, one listener and I'm just interested, anybody that watched watched it, how did you feel watching it? you know, your views on the programme, please. Because one listener says, Patricia, we need to talk about ma'am, was hard watching at times. It seemed as if it was bordering on elder abuse. No, Nula, at the end of the day, while a widow, is a grown adult and can make her own choices on what she does or does not want to do for the future. It was clear from the documentary that there was no ramp in the house, no downstairs toilet or shower or bathroom, bearing in mind that the dad, uh, Frank, you would have assumed would have been installed following his disabling uh, stroke. So clearly the family haven't planned in any way for the future. What I can't understand uh, in what world it makes sense to suggest to somebody moving away to Spain or to Florida, away from your network of friends and uh, family. And the very end, thank you for that text, and actually I have to say, at times, I found it a little bit uncomfortable as well. I knew what Brendan was thinking of. He was saying, look, big, beautiful world out there. And the retirement village in Florida seemed like a great bit of fun. And it seemed like those people were on a permanent holiday. Even though I thought it was interesting to note that they didn't say the price of how much it is to live in that retirement uh, home in Florida. Because I saw a documentary on one similar based in one of those retirement villages. And it is only the very wealthy that get to stay there. But I thought going to Spain, if you want to go out to the sun, uh, nice idea. But you are very much on your own. I mean, she would be going there as a widow. I mean, lots of Irish couples have decided to retire to Spain, but the, the couple go out together. I think it was a big ask to ask Nuala to do this on her own. And I thought... What broke my heart was towards the end of the documentary where she broke down and basically said to Brendan, you know, this is my home. I never want to be in a position where you're forcing me to leave my home. And it did feel like... The push was on, ma'am, this is a big house. You need to look after yourself. I mean, he was very brave and honest in saying, I don't want to be my mother's carer. I do not want to live with my mother. I do not want my mother coming to live with me. So it, it, it did smack to me off. There was a bit of him securing his mother's future so that he wouldn't have to do anything. And no other members of the family seemed to be jumping in to say, look, it's okay ma. ma'am, I'll always look after you kind of thing so it was very much a case of you wondered at times who's been looked after here is it nula or is it the rest of the family just want to make sure that they have no guilty conscience for fear nula ever needs to be looked after but i did find it a bit heartbreaking at the end when she had to break down and to say i don't want my house had to be sold and i think a number of other elderly people will identify with nula and this whole thing about forcing older people to downsize now Some older people like the idea of downsizing because running a four bedded house on a limited income can be very expensive, can be very costly and it can be cheaper for somebody to move out of a four bedroomed house, move into a nice one or two bedroomed uh, apartment. It might be a more up to date apartment. but if they can move to the same area they want to be around uh, their friends you know if you're involved in, in a golf club or you know you go to bingo or you know you just have your friends nearby where you can pop in for a cup of coffee you don't want to have to move miles away and that's the big problem that we have in this country that we don't have enough of these smaller properties for an older person if the older person wants to do it but I know whenever we raise the issue here we will hear from older people who say this is my home. This is the house, you know, that I came to as a young bride. This is the house, uh, our your bridegroom. This is the house that I came to and I, we, you know, we raised our family. All my memories are here. I never want to leave it. You know, I, you know, I will leave it the day I die. So I don't think anybody should be forced into making those decisions. And it did, did you know, I, I know it makes for good TV and all of that, but it did smack to me a little bit like there was pressure being put on this woman. And she just very obviously didn't want uh, certainly didn't want to sell up the home, so I was I was glad to see her being honest enough at the end. But it was upsetting when she to you know, when she broke down, getting her message across. This is this is not what I want. So, um, and then I, it made me smile at the end that Shane Ross's plan to subdivide the house into a granny flat uh, came in, and it would be ideal in in this their situation the house is big enough uh, to do it and I know there's one pilot scheme going on in Dublin I was waiting actually I thought oh my god please don't say they're the pilot scheme for Shane Ross but they're not they would have been the ideal uh, pilot scheme but I don't know how many houses are big enough to be able to do that and they've got land at the side where they'd be able to build on uh, etc it'll work for some but it won't work I, I think there will be only a handful of people that it will actually work for anyway if you watched the programme last night I would be interested to hear your thoughts and programs on it uh, please somebody just in saying hi listening to you about that show last night time to talk about ma'am and yes the mother in question Nuala was being bullied Um, I thought it was a disgrace on the son shame on him Uh, And actually, somebody else I saw on Twitter was making the point that during the other, uh, during the first one, it's time to talk about dad. There was a lot of pressure being put on the mother again. She didn't want her beloved husband, Frank, to go into a nursing home and any nursing home that they went in to look at. She kept saying, no, I don't like it. I don't like it. Bless her heart. She wanted him at home. You know, they were a much loved united uh, couple 1850 jump John Paul taking your calls you can text her WhatsApp 0862 103103
2: 103. Court today with Breedhaven Nursing Home Mallow it's family run so your loved one will feel at home see Breedhaven.ie
4: C103 Just had a text in in the last couple of minutes from somebody just saying how bad road conditions are and how busy the city is this morning somebody says I'm queuing from Lidl in Wilton trying to get to see you here it's absolutely crazy here this morning so I would avoid unless your journey um, to that particular part of the city is absolutely necessary now according to incidents released to the Labour Party from the Department of Justice money taken into evidence by Gardaí as part of investigations went missing on more than a dozen occasions over a three year period Labour's spokesperson on justice is uh, Sean Sherlock and Sean joins me good morning to you Sean
3: good morning Patricia Sean
4: what prompted you to ask ask the Department of Justice about confiscated money and if any of it had gone missing?
3: Well, this uh, was prompted by a story that appeared in the Irish Times in 2015. Uh, It was a report by Conor Gallagher, uh, which, you know, uh, questioned uh, the the amounts of times when, you know... money as evidence, if you will, was either missing or mislaid, and uh, there was no apparent answer at that time, that prompted me then to put on a parliamentary question, which I have to say took <laughs> the bones of a year uh, to get answered, uh, and it showed that there were 14 incidents between January 2015 and December 2017, where sums of money, confiscated money or or evidence in a case of, as it were, what were lost. Uh, or reported missing from a Garda station. So we, we don't know what the, who the Garda, which Garda stations they are. We don't know what the, the nature of or the background to the money that has gone missing, where, you know, what the background to that is. I'm told that there are ongoing investigations and that I was advised in by the Minister in response to my parliamentary question, um uh, that they were not in a position, quote, to identify individual Garda stations. So there are obviously investigations still going on, but there were 14 incidents.
4: Have we have we any idea on how much is involved?
3: We don't have uh, amounts. We don't have uh, a sense of the hows and the whys and the whens the money went missing, except that we know that it happened between January 2015 uh, to date. Um, But but to be fair to the Gardaí, you know they have responded in the press to say that, you know, they have now a, a tagging system, if you will, put in place uh, to ensure that evidence is, is is marked, if you will. So, you know, it could, the, the, the reasons for this could be anywhere from criminal through to, you know, just, uh, I suppose, accidental, uh, you know, th- that remains to be seen, it remains to be investigated. But it is very strange indeed, you'd have to surmise that there are 14 incidents and it involves monies. So if money. But are, gone, but are there thing, investigations
4: you know underway? I mean, if they, if they happen are. between January of 2015 and December of 2017, they're all at least a year ago Absolutely. and up to four years ago.
3: Absolutely. And so we're going to ask further questions now as to, you know, the, the when, because you, they're saying that they're not going to identify the individual uh, guard stations. That's fair enough. They're saying that it's a matter for ongoing investigation. Well, that's fair enough. But I think we are entitled to know, uh you know, the taxpayers are entitled to know, uh, you know, what the nature of the sums are, you know, how much money is in real terms has actually gone missing. And, you know, it, I will be contacting uh, the, the chief or the guard commissioner uh, in respect of this uh, reply from the minister to seek an update on where those investigations are. Because I, I think people have to have confidence that, you know, if sums of money are confiscated, uh, that, you know, there has to be a complete transparency about how much those sums are, you know, where possible, subject to investigations in relation to those monies. But we people deserve to know exactly, you know, how the money went missing and whether or not there is somebody within the force, if it will, that is under investigation for those sums that are going missing.
4: And what is the procedure on confiscated money? I mean, is it always held in a guard station or do they bring it to the local bank? or uh, Where is where is it put?
3: Well, that is a mystery to me as well, Patricia, and it's a fascinating question because I, I remember, I mean, just as an aside to this, I remember when I was a student in Galway uh, and we were sharing a house, a, a gang of us, and, you know, we were robbed one time and we went down to the local guard station and there was a video recorder there. Um there was a time where you, you you'd hire out a video recorder for the year for a, yeah. a principally sum of you know, a couple of euros or pounds as it were then. And uh, we went down to the local guard station and the guard was able to pull The video recorder. Once we get the description out of a locker in the back room, so you know that's a long time ago. That's over twenty years ago. But so you you got your
4: video recorder back. We got
3: we got our video recorder back. So we were in good stead. uh, As it were, we were more worried about the fact that we were, you know, that we would become liable for it, it lost because we were renting it. But the point here is that you know we need to hear more, maybe from the Garda Commissioner about the process and the protocols that are in place for confiscated monies, because I think it's a bit of a, uh, it's a bit of, I suppose, a black hole in terms of how, what the public knows about that, you know. And I'm sure that, you know, the proceeds of crime or any monies that are confiscated as a result of the proceeds of crime you know, are gathered as evidence. So I suppose if you're gathering evidence in, say for instance, a murder case or a break-in or anything else, I'm sure there's a protocol for the minding of evidence and similarly the same should hold for money. So I, I, I just think it was worth highlighting this issue because I think people do often wonder what happens to the money when it is confiscated. The drug money, you know, I, we know that the drugs themselves are, are actually physically destroyed but we never know what happens to money, and if there are fourteen incidents. But on this, so I, we keep to the positive. Um, I, I look forward to hearing from the Garda Commissioner on it, and and similarly, I look, I, I welcome the Garda Commissioner's uh, appearance at a joint policing committee in Longford yesterday. You know where he spoke about the issue of rural crime and has said now that this is going to be, you know, one of his uh, priorities as part of his agenda into the future, uh, because I think that's that a a situation that everybody who listens to your show you know will have some experience of in terms of neighbours friends or directly themselves uh, and it is good to see that the guard Commissioner is going out to places like Longford yeah. uh, and sending it's a it's signal. Because I saw on what we
4: TV, need yeah, out. it was great. Actually, leaving the, leaving the confiscated money that went missing aside, the other confiscated money, as you say, we often see it on the news when the drugs and they lay it out on the table and you see the big wads of money. I mean, there was one case, I think, where they found money in and it was stored. It was a wheelie bin full of money. Where does that money ultimately end up? Does it go back into the into the state into the coffers? Uh,
3: my understanding is that um, the it, it it does. That is my understanding. But the mechanism by which it goes back into state coffers, uh, again, is a source of curiosity. A bit,
4: it's a bit vague.
3: <laughs> it's yes. So I, I'm sure there is somebody there that will explain, you know, chapter and verse the actual protocol for that. Um, but uh, I, I think it is—it becomes a revenue issue, if you will. I think yeah. uh, revenue commissioners have a role there in relation to, you know, uh, you know the, the the proceeds of crime. And you will see, for instance, in the Gilligan case, historically, you know, uh, they were able to go after John Gilligan on on the basis of of, of revenue crimes, if you will. You know, so there there is a role there for revenue but the exact protocol by which the money transfers from say a Garda station or the scene of a crime into the state coffers uh, again is something that uh, you know we'll be seeking an explanation from the Garda Commissioner okay. on.
4: We, we will await uh, what you discover there with uh, interest and just finally well, why did your parliamentary question why did the answer to your parliamentary question take a year?
3: Well it's becoming a feature of life in Irish politics at the moment uh, Patricia where you know, sometimes there are inordinate delays in respect of certain departments, and the Department of Justice, you know, is one of those. Now, to be fair to the minister himself, you know, he, you know, he did acknowledge that there was the delay in answering the question. But when I asked the question in 2017, I, I imagine that the department officials had to go to every single guard station. They would have written to every single guard station. They were then waiting for the reply to come back in from every single guard station in relation to money uh, confiscated that had gone missing uh, or stolen uh, or lost. And then, obviously, the answers are collated from every guard station and it comes back. So I'm sometimes conscious of the fact as well that when you do put on a parliamentary question that you have to allow for a certain amount of time depending on what you're asking the question on. But the one thing I will say is that the parliamentary question uh, is the one power that an individual TD has to hold the government to account. And, you know, you're asking that question on behalf of the people, no matter, you know, whether, you know, they're in your constituency or not, because it's a record of, uh, you know, it's a record, it's an accounting standard, if you will. It's a record of accountability to the people directly via their public representative. So if there's an inordinate delay, it does cause frustration on the part of individual TDs, and there can be times as well when you you have to really be careful. I've been asking questions now for over 10 years, and you have to write, you know, as with any good civil servant, if you didn't don't ask the right
4: questions. Uh, question... Questions, you don't <laughs> okay, get the right, right answer, you know. yeah.
3: So you become quite forensic on these things, but you have to be meticulous as well. Like, similarly, at the moment, there's a whole range of issues within the Cork area that I would have parliamentary questions on. For instance, the issue of the schools during the week in Dublin. Now, I have a series of parliamentary questions tabled about Middleton and Fermoy, you know, and other areas where there is delays in relation to schools, similarly with Mallow where there's delays in relation to the building of schools. And I've asked very specific questions about when the school's capital programme will be built. Like, waiting over, we'll be waiting over a year for Fumoy. For we'll be waiting, you know, we don't know how long we'll be waiting for Middleton. You know, we don't know, you know, the ETB uh, is responsible for the, the, the schools, but very often what happens is the minister says, well, I can't answer the question, but I'm putting it back down to the Education and Training Board, the former VEC. But you've got to keep pursuing the minister then Because, you know, there are people out there who are parents, students, teachers, etc., and they have an expectation that their schools will be built. So sometimes you'll get the stock answer, but I use the parliamentary questions as a tool to try and get very specific answers. To very specific questions.
4: All right, and we want those schools built, and we want them built safely as well. Listen, yeah, we and, have and to, on, the, on yeah. the
3: schools thing, Patricia. And in, in ten seconds or less, uh, if if you were talking about the schools in, in the future, because there are serious issues in relation to schools in North and East Cork at the moment, in relation to the fall of Carillion and Salmon. Yeah, like there are still serious questions about, you know, when like Middleton will be completed, St Cormans, when and Creveen will be completed. You know, when Patrician Academy, which was not a Carillion or Salmon school in Mallow, is going to be completed, there seems to be inordinate delays. And, you know, there are legitimate questions now. There was a big focus in Dublin during the week in Turrellstown because that's in the heart of the Taoiseach's constituency. But, like, we need to have a proper focus as well on schools in Cork.
4: OK, we'll leave it there, uh, Sean. We'll talk again. Thanks for that and uh, Thank thanks for you. joining us. Uh, good morning to you. That is uh, Labour Party Spokesperson for Justice, uh, Deputy Sean Sherlock. 1850 333 103. Lines open.
2: Court today. With Breedhaven Nursing Home Mallow. It's family run, so your loved one will feel at home. See breedhaven.ie. See 103.
4: And continuing to get reaction to the TV documentary that went out last night, Brendan Courtney. Now it's time to talk about Ma'am. it was a programme about Brendan Courtney and his mother Nula and Brendan trying to decide what was best for his mother Nula and they looked at options like that she'd set up the family home and she'd retire to Spain he also took it to Florida to a retirement at uh, home a retirement village. And then he also took it to a place in Dublin that looked quite interesting, I have to say, for people who really did not want to live on their own. Uh, It was like sheltered living. And it seemed like a really nice place in Dublin. I don't know if there's many more places like that around the country. Anyway, Margaret says, we are an elderly couple. We're in our 80s, says Margaret uh, by text. I felt the programme last night was more about Brendan. Uh, and less about his mother, Nuala. We have a big house, too big really for us, but it's our home. And I will only leave this home one way. Hopefully, even though it's expensive to keep, we don't have any luxuries. We're so Happy here and happy to be living here, thank God. I was delighted for Nula that she stuck to her guns last night. Who wants to be exiled from family and friends, uh, says Margaret. Anna has contacted uh, the programme in Bandon. Uh, uh, good morning to Anna. Good morning, Patricia. Now, you, you watched the programme last night.
5: I didn't. I actually missed this.
4: Oh, you didn't watch but it. Sorry, I didn't watch Sorry, it, But but Fran- but, but, Fran- but you know you know what the program w- was about. But I you know. I, I, you I, I'm, I'm, you had spoken to us before after your mum died, and and I think I we did, were dealing I with did, the issue right. of of bereavement. But having your mother and keeping your mother at home and keeping her local was very important to you and and the rest of your family.
5: That's right. It was. And, and men- the, sad, the sad thing about it is like. Do you know, like, it was two years last month, and every day seems to get harder. And you know that that that, that, that oh God, forgive me, that thing made me sick last night because it wasn't about him. Uh, sorry, it wasn't about his mother; it was about him.
4: Yeah, he you know? kept saying to her, "I don't. You're not living with me. I don't want you living with me." And he actually also said at another point, "I don't want to be your carer."
5: Well, I think that's lousy because I mean you're only one mother, no? And and I I mean I would do anything today if if I had my man back. Sorry. I
4: know. If I
5: had my man back, I would do anything, anything. And there's sometimes I question myself: did I do something wrong? You know. And even though my man could never travel, but uh, like when she did go, it was breaking my heart to think that we had to. Well, I didn't. That. Then Bosters had to put her in the house and bring her down. And I know she didn't know, but like that, that, that was heartbreaking. And we brought her home. And, and did she ever end up,
4: did she ever end up having to into a nursing home?
5: Never. No. And we would never do it. And we would never have the kind of money that that, I won't say, but he has. But it's not, it, it was nothing to do with his mum. It was just all about him. The next, you know, the fecker would be writing a book.
4: And did you have support from other family members?
5: I have nine in, in my family. I've got six sisters and three brothers. And I would not ask for a better family. I'm a man myself and I'm a grandma. And only last Thursday evening I have a baby, a grandson, as well as a granddaughter now. And I would do anything for them and they would do anything for me, as well as all the rest of my family.
4: And did all of the family help out with your mother?
5: They did. They did. I mean, there were times like that I was sick. You know, I was sick. Because like, when mum went down here, like, it was very hard to watch her. Yeah. But see, I didn't mind that because I worked in the Cod Jasper for 10 years and I loved it. I love people and I love kids. And I don't have to go on television like him, to, you know, to talk about my mum. Yeah, and, no, and mamma, the, the mother, had one in a million and yeah. you have only one, ma'am. You only
4: get one, ma'am. You're right, you're you right on that. One, and I mean, I have to say, Nuala, the, 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 she's a very sprightly woman in her 70s. I mean, she's still she's still working. The only uh, other thing I did notice was the other family members were, I mean, his sister straight away says, well, I've got children. I can't in any way look after I, You know, I can't help out. There was nobody willing to even say, well, if something happens, let's see if we can do it.
5: Yeah, well, I I think the likes of them they don't deserve a mother like that. It's as simple as that. I mean, I know there are big families and small families. I like, can, they are busy, busy, but you always make time for your man, always.
4: Yeah, at the end no? the point. The point always. being, you won't you only have the one mother. You only have, you the, only have the one. All right, mother. So Even you... when I was
5: looking after my granddaughter, I'd always bring her up to my man.
4: And did and she, she love having them. all the grandchildren and the great grandchildren when they yeah. were
5: younger? they used to sleep up there?
4: Yeah. Yeah.
5: You know, not, no, my brother, my brother is at home at the moment now, but it's really hard for me still to say, you know, I, I'd have to say, like, I'm going up to mam's, I'm going up to mam's.
4: You'll always say you that. Know? Yeah, I, I think that. I'll always
5: say it. It will take me a long time, Tricia, and then, and I'm not ashamed to say this, I had to go away for three months. And that was the hardest thing, besides losing my father, that was the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life. But I know she's with me every day, and I am getting stronger.
4: Yeah, and you, and yeah, you, I and you certainly have to. no guilty conscience. You did everything, everything that you could to look after uh, your mother. You I were, and You I were mean, a I good daughter. Go,
5: I can go off to the graveyard there and I just sit down. And of course, I light up my cigarettes and I can hear her say, would you take that bloody thing out of your mouth?
4: <laughs> <laughs> now, that's a you good know? piece of advice from your mother. You should, you should keep that one in your head. It is. Yeah. I mean,
5: like, we used to sleep there at night and my ma- mum ma- ma- was very religious. Ma- my mum a lady. As a very religious woman. We had the rosary every night. And I I'd say to her, ma'am, when I go, you know, I said, Do me one favor and she said, Don't be talking like that and she says, I'll go before you. I said, don't you do listen to me now, but the crack was right between those. Yeah. She, she was a good woman. She was a good woman and you put and 20 a good major, daughter. I said, into the coffin. Twenty major and uh box of net. And just in case were no lighter as well. <laughs> She said,
4: "Don't be talking like that." Well, I said, "Just in case I wake up, so I'd be prepared." <laughs> All you right, and, and, yeah, Anna. We leave it there. Thank you for that. And and uh, and and you, and, much and much and much. You've, as I say, you're a great daughter, and you and are a great mam, and you have lovely memories. Thank you for that. Joe in Northcork says, "How do these so-called personalities get these TV uh, programs? They seem to be experts on everything, expert on housing, and expert on uh, caring." At the end of the day, what what is his expertise? Well, he's he's a fashion. He is a well, he's a fashion designer and TV presenter so a fashion designer uh, is where his expertise lies.
2: You're listening to Cork Today on replay. Phone and text lines are
4: currently closed. We'll be talking about the Christmas Shoebox Appeal and this is the Shoebox Appeal where you fill up a little shoebox for children in overseas. It's, it's Eastern European countries, a lot of kids in orphanages and they also go to a lot of the African countries and somebody has pointed out, Patricia, would you find out when is the last date for the Shoebox Appeal for the penny dinners? We always send to that appeal and I'd like to do so again this year. We do need to look after our uh, own. We were only talking about the Shoebox Appeal over the weekend. Many thanks, says uh, Mary, We put a call through to Penny Dinner's and their shoebox appeal is slightly different to the one we're going to be talking about today in that it's Christmas gifts. They hand out the gifts then to the families that come to them and the individuals that come to them for Christmas dinner on Christmas Day. So keep that in mind when you, if you're doing the shoebox appeal for penny dinners. It is a little bit different to the one that we'll be talking about a little bit later on. But yes, penny dinners are saying they don't have a, a, a cut-off day on it because they give out those gifts on Christmas Day. So I suppose any time between now and Christmas week you could drop it into Penny Dinners they would be delighted to hear from you and the Blood Donor Clinic have been on, they are in urgent need of blood donors, if you're in and around the city, the Blood Donor Clinic is open at St Fimber's Hospital from half past three until half past seven this afternoon, if you would like to pop along, if you want to make an appointment you can at 0214807400 but they are in need of blood please, at St Finber's Hospital in the city, the Irish cattle and Sheep Farmers Association, they've called on the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, to consider measures to control the sell-off of loans involving farm families uh, to so-called vulture funds. ICSA Rural Development Chairman Seamus Sherlock uh, joins me. Uh, Good morning to you Seamus. Um, Good morning. And and what I meant to say there was the sell-off of loans involving family farms. Now we're not selling the family, it's the family farm. Have we any figures on the number of farm loans that are now under the control of hedge funds? Uh,
6: First of all good morning Patricia. Good morning to you. Um, To be honest with you it's how long is a piece of string at the moment. Basically, I've seen reports in the media last week that there was up on 28,000 acres of land already involved in dealing with vulture funds. I would imagine that's a drop in the ocean to what's coming, uh, unfortunately, because there's talks of more and more banks selling their loan books to vulture funds. So at the moment, we're not really sure because It's one of those things a lot of farmers don't talk about it and a lot of farmers don't even know they're sold.
4: Now that's the interesting point. Farm families, are they ever contacted in advance by their bank to say, look, we're going to sell your loan on?
6: Some people seemingly have and other people are claiming they have never been told. That just some morning a letter arrived from a hedge fund to say that they are now the owners of the loan and that they'll be dealing with them and that's the first contact some farmers claim they've had and it's a huge shock obviously as you can appreciate it's a very worrying time and I mean to be honest with you my biggest concern here is the lack of knowledge a lot of people don't understand it have no idea what they're going to be dealing with and it's putting tremendous mental health and physical health on a lot of farm families at the moment
4: And are these fund managers interested in trying to restructure the existing loan?
6: Absolutely not. Unfortunately, I have met many of them, Patricia, and it's a money's game. It's a numbers game to them. It's like unfortunately, they're using farm families, home loans like that and loans like that, as a commodity. They buy cheap, they sell dear. That's the way they talk. That's all they're interested in is a markup on their money, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of Farmers and farm families are caught in the middle here.
4: And, of course, it it must be pointed out as well that the loans are sold from the banks to these vulture funds at a fraction of the original debt.
6: Yes, uh, to be honest with you, again, there's a lot of figures being bandied around, but the figure that we see, and and we're confident that in a lot of cases, it's around 20%. Oh. Now, bearing in mind, Patricia, some of these farm, farmers would have offered maybe 60 70% to the bank to clear the loan and were refused. And yet, we're led to believe afterwards these loans have been sold in a portfolio of loans for anything down to as little as 20%.
4: Isn't that very hard to understand? Why it, any bank impossible. would
6: do... It's impossible to understand. And I've asked many, many banks and I've asked the Vulture Fund managers and they just said, that's business. The books are open. The, a portfolio of loans, that could be 100 loans. It could be 1,000 loans are sold in one block as a percentage some of them would be in arrears for a good while. Some of them would actually be only barely gone into arrears. So it's a kind of a, a mixed bag that they buy every time. And unfortunately, a lot of genuine farm families are caught up in the middle of this.
4: Is it because the banks don't want to be seen to be giving debt forgiveness?
6: I don't really know. I suppose, look, at th- that's what they say. Plus, I suppose the banks would say, look, at there's a lot of fellas in debt. We we're we're trying to deal with. We're not able, but we we'll let someone else do it. We'll we'll sell them off as a job lot, as a as a bad cases, and we'll we'll let someone else deal with it. But as far as I'm concerned, Patricia, I've been dealing with people in debt for many many years, and what we find is if we could get the banks to sit down with these farmers, there nearly is always a way of solving this now it would mean a bit of pain on both sides the farmer might have to sell a field or two or maybe a couple of sites if he could we know that there's always going to be a bit of pain but at the end of the day if we could get the loans restructured with the original lender that would be much better than handing it over to fund managers who are just talking numbers
5: they have no interest in family farms
6: they have no interest in keeping rural ireland alive my biggest worry here patricia is there's many, many farmers ringing me now late at night and ringing other, other people, ringing, you know, ringing the Samaritans, ringing everyone late at night because they're stressed out. They really don't know what they're going to be facing, what kind of people they're going to be facing. And, you know, the mental health issue of this will be, the the effects of this will be Catastro- seen for many, many generations.
4: And catastrophic, oh. unfortunately, for, for some uh, families. Are you hearing of the forced sale of farmland?
6: There's there has been attempts. I mean, we've seen some of the farms have been put up on websites for auctions. But lucky enough, when we contact these websites, they do be taken down. We're adamant. That we, the message we're trying to get across to the vulture fund is that, look, at, this isn't a quick fix for you guys. This isn't going to be a quick sale. We think communities have to stand together on this. If a man owes money, yes, he has to be reasonable. He has to be fair. He has to make every attempt. To pay it back. But the problem is, Patricia, as you probably well know, farmers, they're they're acid rich and cash poor. It's very hard to come up with large sums of money overnight. What we need is these loans to be restructured. Even a lot of these loans might have only six or seven years left in them. We might have to get those restructured to 25 years, but that would be still better than selling it out over the family's head.
4: And these are families that have probably worked the land for many, many generations. And
6: unfortunately there could be second, third generation well, farmers. Well. in One bank since the grandfather's time and now they're very hurt and very let down that they've seemed to be handled. Actually that's, the that,
4: that's a good point that, that that you've raised. I mean what about the banks? They surely have a responsibility. They've worked with farm families uh, for generations. Do they not have a responsibility before selling on these loans?
6: Well unfortunately it's, it's that's something you might have to ask the banks. But as far as I can see, you know, they've got to a stage where it was much easier to sell off all the hassle, put it in a shoebox, shut the lid on it and give it to someone else and say, you solve it. And the the result of that is catastrophic to the farm families and to the communities. We need banks to take back control here and say, look, at, we give out the money. You have to pay it back. We might have to restructure it. And in fairness, Patricia, 99% of farmers are very genuine people. They're hardworking, honest, decent people that want to keep the land going and are willing to slave the land, slavery, to, to to pay for it. And if they're willing to do that, I think the bank should give them the opportunity to do that.
4: OK, what do you believe the government and indeed the Minister for Finance should and can do?
6: Well, what we think they should do is they have to put regulations on these vulture funds that they just can't buy thousands of acres of farmland and put it all up on a website next week for public auction. It's absolutely crazy. It's happening all the time. I'm getting called on a weekly basis now from people who have found, have found that their own farm is up on a, on a website for public auction. I mean, that's catastrophic. You know what I mean? The family go into absolute meltdown, into shock. They don't know whether they're coming or going. And I'm afraid of the mental health issues here, as I've said already, because some of these guys, Farmers are very good to work. They're very good to look after the animals. They're not so good to look after themselves. I know, I and know. I'd be very afraid that a lot of these guys just can't cope with this kind of pressure. You know, the, the kids going to school, the kids going to college. And I mean, the farm is up on a public auction. I mean, it, it's just unthinkable. And especially when a lot of these pies have been genuine and have been paying all the costs. And, you know, we've had hard weather for the last 18 months. Bad prices. But that will turn around. Farming will come back again and we need to keep rural Ireland alive. And, and
4: our community is rallying around these farmers. Yes, Shins, and we yeah. in the
6: ICSA and I certainly would be calling on community. I mean, the bottom line is, I've made it clear to the Bolshear Fund, you know, you won't sell this land. It's not sellable. And if they believe it's not sellable, they won't bother with it. Mm. They actually come into this country thinking this was going to be a quick a quick fix. We'll buy it for 20%. We'll sell it for 100%. And And, you know, they have to realise It's land they're talking about here. It's the communities. Rural Ireland, nobody wants to see the local family being thrown off the land. Nobody wants to see that. The kids that's going to school, maybe playing football or hurling with the local team. Nobody wants to see that family being chucked off the land. And I think communities are getting strong. Communities are saying, no, there has to be a better way. And if the banks want to be genuine about this, sit down with the farmer and restructure these loans. OK, the farmer might have to sell a field, Patricia, or two. But that's fair enough. It'll get him back on track yes, you All know, right. we're not, we're, we, we need people to stand together, we need communities to send out a strong message here, there'll be no sale of
4: land. Okay, Seamus, uh, we'll talk again, thank you for that. Thank you very and much. And thanks uh, for joining us, that is Seamus Sherlock, who is the ICSA Rural Development uh, Chairman, as he says, the vulture wings uh, must be clipped. Eighteen fifty-three, three, three, one hundred three. A lot of commentary coming in on the Brendan Courtney uh, show last night, it's uh, time to talk about Mam. Jane says, I saw the Brendan Courtney program last night, I was thinking God, why would she go to Spain when her family, her family home and her community are in Dublin? But I think it was a programme about options. I don't think it was all about this particular mother. I do think he was joking about her not living with him. It's obvious that he's mad about his mother. If you are financially comfortable, then you're fine. He was trying to show that not everyone is like that. And if she doesn't plan, she could lose her home. I don't think it was as bad as the people were saying. Well, well... Yeah I don't know if he was I I absolutely do think there was a great affection between the two of them and it came out in the first documentary as well but there's no threat of her losing her home she is asset rich and cash poor that's the point that's why he was trying to get her to sell the house and downsize because he reckoned the house is worth 400,000 there's no mortgage on the house so a lot of her wealth is tied up in that house and the savings she's flying through it's go- not going to last uh, very much longer. So his point was that if she downsizes and bought a smaller property for, say, 250000 it would lead her with 150000 which is when he bought in an expert would allow her to have cash. Um, and to live the lifestyle she's living at the moment from now until she was 100 so I don't think there's any threat that she's going to lose uh, the house but she may end up in a position that she won't have a lot of cash Uh, and that's one of the reasons that he was talking about uh, downsizing some more of your comments coming in Patrick Mallow says his late mother used to always say anyone can be a father but you only have one mother anyone can be a father but you only have one uh, mother uh, Margot says, Hi Patricia, I agree with Anna who joined you in the last hour talking about her mother. That programme last night was all about Brendan Courtney. I couldn't imagine any loving son wanting to pack his mother off to Spain against her will. Out of sight, out of mind, if she's in Dublin, he'd probably feel obliged to have to call in. But if she's in Spain, sure not phone call, it'll be fine. And he can get on with his own busy life. Clearly too busy to think of where his mother might be happiest, says uh, Margaret, pat says i watched that program last night and it became evident to me that it was brendan led nula was led to spain nula was led to florida for what because brendan was suiting himself Nuala is happy in the home that she raised her family in. It was all about Brendan Courtney suiting himself. Uh, as he said in the programme, he doesn't want to be his mammy's minder. He came across this path as a selfish uh, man. Mary says, hi, I listened to his mam then putting pressure on her going abroad to live is hard for anyone. My mam died 20 years ago and it was a very sudden death. He and others should appreciate having your mother around There are many people, I mean, that's the one that came across when poor Anna was upset talking to us. There are many people who would love to have their mothers around and Maura says, If my children could afford to send me to a posh Florida home or a posh place in Spar- particular Spain, I'd love it. But how many kids today can do this? I looked after my mum until she got a bad stroke. Brendan Courtney, as that lady is saying, is a selfish glory hunter, says uh, Maura. So a bit of a mixed reaction, but the bulk of people feeling that he was almost trying to force his mother's, mother's hand, even though at the end when she broke down and said, this is not for me. That that seemed to have been at the end of it, uh, eighteen fifty three 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 one zero three. There's a kind of an upsetting text came in, and I'm wondering how other people would deal with this. Um, and I'm going to be conscious of the way I word it, for fear that there are smallies. Listening, children who are not at school, listening to the programme this morning. But um, the listener says, Patricia, I got a phone call there from my daughter. Her little girl is 10. She's well into Santa Claus. You can imagine the excitement now in the lead up to Christmas. Bef- before her holidays, a, a non national girl in the same class told all the Irish children about the reality regarding Santa Claus. Uh, My granddaughter was so upset. She came home, spoke to my daughter about it. She actually cried herself to sleep that night. My daughter had to sit her down and explain everything about uh, Santa Claus. I think that this should never have happened. Teachers should be explaining to the parents of. Children who come from outside of Ireland and then come to live here—that we have, you know, we have different traditions and we view things uh, differently—and the children should be explained to that them that other children in the class might have a very different view of uh, Santa Claus, a very, very upsetting experience. Mm. And I'm wondering, has that happened? It was in a North Cork school. I'm wondering, has that happened in other? Uh, schools. Obviously it's part of uh, it's, Santa Claus isn't in everybody's uh, tradition. I, d- I remember when my own son was growing up there was a little lad who moved into the neighbourhood uh, from Galway and his parents were I'm open to correction but I think the religion was called Baha'i And they didn't celebrate Christmas at all. And this little lad, I always remember Aaron was his name. This little lad, she used to break my heart because all the other little boys on the street were all talking about Santa Claus and all talking about what they were getting and not getting. And he would say, well, Santa Claus doesn't call to my house because I'm a Baha'i and we don't believe. And uh, he was going to get something in the January sales. (laughs) But I just always, I found it so utterly heartbreaking. But it never in any way did the other little boys that he played with They were about seven at the time, so they were really into Santa Claus. They never questioned anything about the story of Santa Claus or anything. It was just that poor Aaron was behind, and because of that, Santa didn't call uh, to his house. But yes, I can absolutely accept how upsetting it is, and at 10... You're probably getting close enough to the last year of the real magic uh, of it. And for most families, they like to hang on to that, don't they, for as, uh, as long as they can. So we'll give it out to see, has it happened in other schools? Has anybody else come across uh, that where the, the true story of Santa Claus was explained uh, to children and not left? a
1: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
4: This is something that absolutely should be left to the parents and the parents uh, alone. 1850 333 Text or WhatsApp 0862 103
2: 103. C103
4: Jobs. Dermot Casey Limited in Mallow. They're looking for an e commerce and a digital marketing specialist. Round tower fitted. Furniture and kitchens in scheme. They're looking for experienced carpenter, while a truck driver for multi-drop farm deliveries with a, a Moffat forklift is wanted. It's a weekday work and it is based in Mallow. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103.
2: Court Today with Breedhaven Nursing Home Mallow. It's family run so your loved one will feel at home. See Breedhaven.ie
4: C103. Just a couple of more uh, texts uh, coming in on the programme last night. Uh, time to talk about ma'am. Brendan Courtney says a texter also did a programme on his father who was suffering from alzheimer's a few years ago my mother had alzheimer's disease for six years terrible to see a parent deteriorating yeah it's it's just got to be the worst worst uh, condition i think for and for the loved ones very 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 hard need even though i think with brendan courtney's father it was a stroke he'd had one stroke and then his second stroke was very, very de- debilitating. I don't think it was Alzheimer's he had, but they did watch that man, uh, a lovely big Frank, was not his name, a lovely big gentle giant and, and they certainly watched him uh, deteriorate at an alarming rate. Uh, someone John says, uh, I actually turned off that programme last night and I put on Jimmy Reedy. <laughs> Somebody not impressed with the programme at all. Thank you for that uh, John. 1850 Now the Department of Transport could be asked to get major sat-nav suppliers to alter the way they input information for HGVs and buses so they don't travel on routes unsuitable for larger vehicles. Taking the lead is West Westcourt Councillor Kevin Murphy uh, who joins me. Good morning to you Kevin. Good morning Patricia. Uh, and you? You? And I'm very well. Now because of the way they work, do sat-navs simply not recognise very narrow ro- roads or even in some cases boreens? They're just Trying to direct the traffic to the destination the quickest way possible.
7: Yes, that's quite true. In actual fact, they are um, they're, they're geared to um, pick, pick the straight, most straightforward route. They say themselves, and that could be into cul- cul-de-sacs. It could be up narrow roads. It could be on very dangerous hills, or maybe even tight corners and everything else. Well, unsuitable totally for heavy vehicles or buses.
4: And what sort of problems are arising that you're hearing about?
7: Well, I've heard I've heard so many at this stage, uh, Patricia, it's, um, it's it's beyond belief that um you know that the sat nav companies haven't already adjusted their sat navs to suit that. Um I know for a fact that in, in my own case, um, where in Kinsale we've seen forty four articulated trucks going through the town of Kinsale. Now you know Kinsale pretty well. Yeah. And uh, it's quite unsuitable. sections of Kinsale town itself are totally unsuitable for articulated trucks. And um, I witnessed them myself. And um, one in particular recently had uh, ended up inside in, by saying Maltos Church coming into the middle of the town and had to uh, get around the corner of the courthouse, down to towards the White House and out of Cork. And it took 25 minutes, almost a half an hour, oh. to get it from one section to the other.
4: And yeah because I door. know we would have listeners contact us to say from all over the county to say yeah. there's a truck stuck somewhere and you know getting people to avoid the area while they got the truck and and the reason the truck was stuck there was it had ended up on a road or at a bend that was just unsuitable like that for you know a 40 foot articulator trying to negotiate a narrow, be- narrow bend and you see our real problem here Kevin is our road network especially in rural areas was never designed for large trucks and buses never
7: Absolutely. Uh, that's one section of it, uh, Patricia. The, the other part of it, of course, obviously, is that, um, is that the, 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 the trucks themselves the the trucks and the satinavs themselves can't differentiate between, and the narrow or the wide road or such, they can't differentiate between the area and an suitable area for trucks. Uh, so, really and truly, it's back down to the satinavs um, providers to go and change what they have already uh, done over the years. You see, we got back in a couple of notes from
4: because you uh, wrote uh, to them, you you wrote uh, to them. We,
7: we wrote to them, yeah. we got back two very very poor responses. One in particular came back. Yeah, came back and said to us, "Sorry, look, um, if you, we only go if it's an illegal route. No, what's an illegal route? You know, I mean, effectively, there's no such thing as an illegal route. Uh, the only route we are talking about is those which a truck can traverse and, and a, a bus, in particular. One one recently down for Summer Corner, which is from Charles Fort, to Morcini, here in Kinsale, down into Kintale itself, and, and he took this, the narrow road down to Summer Cove, which is absolutely impossible to travel. It's virtually impossible for a bus. The bus got stuck, and it's back all the way back up again. No, so that's only about three weeks ago. And really and truly, we, we had held the whole show up from that area for about, I suppose, about half of three quarters of an hour. It got sun real, and it's putting buses and, and, and the passengers and the drivers of trucks as well in great danger themselves as well, you know.
4: One of our listeners is pointing out that there is a dedicated sat-nav for HGVs, but it costs around €400. Euro. You yes. upload information of vehicle, its length, its weight, its height, and maybe the weight, and the weight depends on the model and the make. The sat-nav reduces the possibility of buses, HGVs, etc., going into unsuitable roads, depending on the data that the roads are being available and the data that's inputted by the driver, obviously.
7: yeah. And uh, that's exactly it. But the driver doesn't know where he's going, you see. The driver himself, The driver himself, uh, some of the drivers at the moment are foreign nationals as well, and we don't, they don't, they, they somebody can't, can read it, but uh, it's very difficult for some person who's listening to the audio to have them explain where, natural fact, is out of bounds, if you like, mm. or is available for transport. So it's 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 down to having a sat nav, which in, in actual fact will take all those difficult areas out of the system. And allow them to go on the proper route.
4: and that's to up to the part. SATNAV suppliers to do and, it. And,
7: go, and Google, and, and Google,
4: Google. As well. uh, no. But as a council, do you have a role to play in telling the companies which we roads have, are not? We, yeah. we
7: have. Um, in actual fact, the the motion I put down for the Kentil and Bandon Municipal District recently has been, um, has been uh recommended for full council. Now to go to full council on the second Monday the second meeting uh in November. We can the first one was next Monday we have a budget meeting, but this the second meeting of the full council is going directly to them. It's already on the agenda. Okay. Oh, and uh, and I think it's more it's even more than a county-wide issue. Um,
4: it says it's this is nationwide. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's a national issue.
7: So what we expect to do is to get to get full um approval from the council itself to go forward to ask uh, those particular set peoples and those providers to provide on a national basis uh, the, the proper input into those first days so that people will not get lost and they won't go down Narrow borings or very dangerous Hills.
4: Yeah, That's what we want to do. I- Eileen by text says, while well, you're talking about narrow roads, is it possible to get a road deleted on Google Maps. I mean that's kind of what you are suggesting, isn't it?
7: It's something it's something in that route that in other words that the, the routes yeah the routes that would be on the, the truck or the bus that map would not appear on the map on the map uh, which they provide and that would certainly be a major help. But I think it's the on narrow roads either, you see, it's it's the danger it's the danger that, that a that a truck or a bus would put themselves into and put other road users into if they go that route. Um they they can be scenic routes some are very scenic and some are very dangerous. And uh, certainly, I know recently, where um, where uh, I've been told recently, that where um, a 53-seater bus went on a very uh, coastal route as such and got trapped inside her and had to be pulled off a ditch. Now, th- that type of stuff, really and truly, whatever we're deleting, it's a coastal road, a coastal route, and that's on the SatNav and we'll stay on the SatNav, for my for, for yeah. argument's sake, you know? So there are many, many, I could, I could name uh,
5: I 15 know. or 20 who and, are And, and
4: another know? one that got, you know, a lot of media coverage, the Waterloo Junction on the Cork to Limerick Road. I mean, that's currently closed. And that's yeah. a prime example. The sat-nav sending tourists the quickest route to Blarney rather than yeah. the safest route. And that's caused deaths.
7: Absolutely. You know, I suppose in fairness overall, um that's somewhat different because we're talking there. That's the national route. So, so the yeah. issue route is, is called. That's the N20, and, and in 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 that instance, I know full well that. Um, and I've recently visited there was a number of issues which appear there, and could have been resolved easier, much easier than closing the route, And I'm saying that now from my own back. I know, I know, an engineer. I know. But certainly, the route itself, um, the route itself, ended the. Um, the ghost islands on that is are, are, are very very poor there. And, and I think that that, that turn off ha- would have to, to be improved big time and it's not beyond the possibility for them to go and do that they can do it. Easy enough, in fairness, and they okay.
4: can make it very safe if they wish. Okay, and that's and right. for for the people living there, it's it's stressful. It, it's stressful, and, uh, and it should not be told. No, it no, it's a told. divided yeah. community, yeah. which is really unfair. It okay, we we'll leave told. it there, Kevin. Thank you for that, Bye and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Eileen says there is a private road that's marked as a public road on Google. Says Eileen, "Oh goodness me, you uh, should get. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you would get onto Google if it's your own a uh, private road, and uh, I'm assuming from your text." That people are ending up are being directed onto that road when they shouldn't be directed onto the road. Maybe you could get onto Google, and they'll be able to sort it out for for you. And someone else says using the using the argument that the sat nav that drivers have a different language uh, is rubbish because all sat navs come with other languages, so they can simply input. What language they want to hear the instructions uh, in. 1850 333, 103. When we're on about roads, a reminder to you that uh, traffic flows are being restricted on Davis Street in Mallow. Tonight, Tuesday the 6th and Wednesday the 7th. It kicked in last night as well. From 9 p.m. each night until 7 a.m. in the morning. It's uh, diversions will be in place. It's to facilitate the essential cleaning of the foul sewers by a jetting contractor. And Cork County Council on Irish Water apologise for any inconvenience that's Davis Street in uh, Mallow from 9 p.m at night they're doing the work overnight 9 p.m at night to 7 a.m in the morning and it continues tonight Tuesday and again tomorrow Wednesday night
2: court today with breedhaven nursing home Mallow it's family run so your loved one will feel at home see breedhaven.ie c103
4: this is the court today replay on c103. And we were talking about much loved mothers earlier on on the programme. I've just seen a WhatsApp in from a daughter talking about her much loved mother and says, if you get time, Trish, would you say hello to my mum? She came out of hospital yesterday. She's sitting in bed listening to you and she's 87 years of age. Her name is Nellie. That's all I know. Don't know where Nellie is listening uh, to us, except that she's in bed at the moment, recovering after a stay in hospital. And I'm sure the family delighted to have you home, uh, Nellie. Good health uh, to you. Now the closing date for this This year's Christmas shoebox appeal is fast approaching with families asked to have their shoebox in by this Friday, November the 9th. Joining me to discuss what is a wonderful charity is the CEO of Team Hope and that is uh, Peter Heaney. Good morning to you, Peter. Good morning. And uh, you're welcome to the programme. Have you a figure on the number of shoeboxes you would hope or like to collect this year?
8: We do. Last year we collected... 264,636 shoeboxes and this year we're hoping to to reach the figure of 280,000 and it's important to us to to try and get even more shoeboxes because every shoebox goes to another child so that's 280,000 children who will receive a shoebox
4: How many different countries do you deliver to?
8: Um, we deliver to, to quite a range um, in Eastern Europe and Africa, about thirteen in total last year, and we're planning thirteen again this year.
0: So
4: let's remind people what they can um, include. Is it's it's still the four Ws, is it?
8: It is. Yeah. Um, so something to write with, uh, copybooks, pens, pencils, uh, something to wash with, some toothpaste, uh, toothbrushes, soap, face cloths, something to wear, and. Um, Hats, scarves, gloves, um, T-shirts. And the last one is the important one, something to make a child go, wow. So a toy car, a toy train, a skipping rope, some sweets, anything that you think would really make a child's eyes just light up. Um, So, yeah, we ask people just to fill a shoebox with sort of items from those categories um, and we we will deliver it to children who just otherwise really wouldn't receive any of those items this year.
4: And the one important thing, if you are putting any uh, sweets in, they must be in date, isn't it, to April of 2019? Yes,
8: sweets in date till April 2019. Um, And on our leaflets and on our website, we have a few things that we ask people not to include. So we ask them not to include any liquids um, because they have a nasty habit of, of freezing or spilling and that can destroy the other contents in the shoebox. Um, and not to include any, any scary or war-related items or any sharp objects. Um, some of the children uh, come from quite um, conflict-prone areas, so
4: yeah.
8: uh, war-related items or anything scary can, can actually have quite a big impact on them And we don't think about in Ireland.
4: Yeah, something like, like a toy gun that a, that a, you know, a little boy or girl would play with here in Ireland very innocently is not something that might be appropriate to a child that has come out, as you say, of, of a war situation or is living in a war situation. Definitely, definitely.
8: Yeah. Um, the other one that I that I also always find sort of intriguing is we ask people not to put in toy snakes, um, because for us here the the little toy snakes that you, you might get, yeah. I, I used to love playing with them as a child. Yeah. Um, in in countries in Africa, they have a very very healthy and real fear of snakes. Um, we don't think about it here, but but for them that that is something that could actually cause a cause a big star. I
4: would them. never have thought of that one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So just just be and, and you will also be surprised if you've never done it before, how much you can get into a shoebox.
8: Yes, yeah. you really can. Um you can you can really pack them quite full of, of quite a lot. Um and there's always space to squeeze in a little extra something, a little yeah. sort of pen or some sweets or um Sort of a little pair of gloves or something like that. There's always room to get something else in, and we do ask people to try and get as much in as possible because it just makes such a big difference to the child who receives them.
4: And the shoe boxes. I know shoe shops. Certainly, shoe shops uh, across uh, Cork County are always really good about giving giving out shoe boxes to people if you don't have one at home.
8: Yes, yeah, we we get great support from uh, from shoe shops um, across the country. Um, who, who very kindly um, give vast amounts of, of unused shoeboxes to people on an annual basis. Um, we also this year um, are selling flat pack shoeboxes for the okay. first time in, in conjunction with a the wholesaler. There's very limited stocks, so a lot of places may have uh, right, sold out, sold out of them already.
4: Okay. Um, and then you look for a small donation, four euro, that's to cover the delivery costs and admin and all of that. Yes, yeah. And then when the when the shoe boxes are are dro- dropped off and delivered your work then for the volunteers really begins because you? you've got to sort everything and go through every box.
8: We do. Uh we we that's why one of the reasons why we ask people not to seal the boxes. We we sort through them all um and and that's just to kind of check that there aren't any of those items there that we just mentioned that have maybe slipped in that we can't send and to To kind of check through them for customs purposes and stuff like that as well, and we have checking centers across the country. We have fantastic volunteer teams all across the country who who set up warehouses, go through check all the boxes, and then pack them into cartons for um for shipping off and we We're always looking for more volunteers to help out in them so if you are listening and would like to, to take part and you have some spare time and would like to check some shoeboxes, please do go onto websites. We have local coordinators' numbers there or call our office and we will very happily put you in touch with someone who can uh, can hopefully help you help out.
4: Okay, and your drop-off points this year, Peter?
8: Our drop-off points this year nationwide are um, AXA Insurance, Toymaster branches, uh, First stop Fast Fit Tire Shops and Deals. Uh, we also have a full list on www.teamhope.ie
4: Okay, and um, Maureen in Kilty maybe she's just joined us because we've already answered this. Is it okay to put sweets into the shoebox? It is, but you've got to make sure that they're in date Definitely. by April of uh, 2019. And Peter, t- just as best you can, describe what it is like for the children who receive these shoeboxes and what it means to the children.
8: It's it really is indescribable. Um and it's it's not just the children that have that impact. I if, if you go on to um YouTube and, and look it up there is a there's a video of some ninety seconds of children receiving shoeboxes in Burundi um from a few years ago. And it is just ninety seconds of wall to wall noise and excitement. And joy. Uh, and joy.
4: Absolute joy.
8: Yeah. Um, I was in Swaziland earlier on this year. I had the privilege of meeting some families um, that we work in in our community development projects, but they had also all received a shoebox earlier on in the year. And the children were still loved and cared for those items so much. And talking to their mothers and their grandmothers, they were able to point out, go around and say, well, you know, this child, they got a copybook. That, that was so, such a big thing for them because it, it really helped them in their schooling. You know, this T-shirt, you see this T-shirt, this nice T-shirt? We got this in the shoebox. And it's, it's an impact for the children, but it's also such an impact for the whole family and for the mothers and grandmothers who care for those children as well.
4: All right, it's a wonderful charity. We wish you continued good luck with it. But as I say, Friday is the cut off point. Uh, and I know lots of schools have been involved, and the schools have been great. They've already uh, been collecting their shoeboxes. Uh, so, teamhope.ie, if anybody wants further details. In the meantime, Peter, thank you for that, and thanks for joining us on the programme. Thank you so much. Good morning, to you. and That is uh, Peter Heaney, who is the CEO of Team Hope. You're listening
2: to Cork Today on replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed.
4: I was talking about the shoebox, the Team Hope shoebox appeal and somebody from Mitchellstown was on to say would I ever give a mention to the drop off points in Mitchellstown and it's the uh, Ozanum Centre Super Value and Price Savers in Mitchellstown and if you go on to the team ie, uh, they have a really really good website and you can see little video clips of uh, drop offs that they did last year but they also give you the do's and don'ts if you're planning on doing one of the shoebox uh, appeals and they give the full length most of the deals stores if you're near a deals store I don't know if deals have collected them before are they a new pickup point but um there's there are a lot of companies um uh, like AXA for example and once you've got an AXA company I things going off here in the background right now because uh, various things are starting to come back on uh, you, but you'll find a drop off point and of course a lot of the schools locally are organising uh, collecting shoeboxes and the schools usually have been very good in the past so that even if you don't have a son or daughter going to the school and you filled one of the shoeboxes if you wanted uh, to hand it in uh, you can. Here's an interesting uh, Call that we've had in from a listener, and she's more looking for advice than uh, anything. And she's particularly looking uh, for advice from other parents who would have a son or daughter going to an adult service for an intellectual disability and if they get the bus to and from the centre or to and from the workshop uh, every day. That's the situation she finds herself in with her son. But her son is uh, suffers from epilepsy. Now, for a period of time, he had a bus escort with him. Just if, God forbid, he's on the bus... And he has a seizure. So he's had an assistant with him. And that's obviously peace of mind to everybody, but particularly to, to the family when their son is heading off in the morning. But because he hasn't had a seizure for a number of weeks, it was five or six weeks, the service provider where her son gets his day placement has decided mm, doesn't really need a, a bus escort anymore. And now he goes on the bus with all of the other clients that are on the bus but he doesn't have an escort himself and that's making the mammy who contacted us a little bit nervous and she's wondering what is the protocol uh, what happens with other service uh, providers she's with the service provider in the county now I checked it out as best I could and it seems to be it's individual policies it depends on what service provider you are with I mean many of our the majority of our intellectual disabilities are run by really really good uh, charities and we've got some wonderful wonderful examples of different facilities all over the city and county but it depends it seems to vary from one center to the next uh, center i mean she's slow To get in contact with where her son is going and and I know that's about everyone. Parents of uh, children with special needs are always afraid of rocking the boat and she doesn't want to cause any upset or any problems because she's very happy with the service that her son is getting. She's just nervous about him being on the bus in case he has a seizure and he doesn't have uh, an escort uh, with him. Um, and she's just wondering, looking for advice as, as to what she can or can't uh, do. Now, I, I was talking to somebody who suggested maybe that she has a chat with the bus driver because it'll become the bus driver's responsibility if, God forbid. Now, hopefully he never will have a seizure, but if he does, it'll be the bus driver. And all of the bus drivers usually, and all of those buses are, are well trained. But if you've got a bus, you know, you maybe you could have 10, 12 other clients on the bus and one has a seizure, it can be a pretty tricky situation for a bus driver to be in to be able to pull in and sort out what needs uh, to be done and you know it's, it's, it's tough it's a, a responsible job uh, I'll tell you that but one suggestion was that maybe if you had a chat with the bus driver and could the bus driver maybe on your behalf speak to the organisation where your son goes and, and, and to see if anything can be done and, and I know where the provider is coming from if we were to get onto them on your behalf and the particular mother hasn't asked us to do that but I know that what they'll come back and say it's all down to costs and, and every single one of those providers have to fundraise uh, we've seen it time and time again. There's less money coming from the HSE. They've been asked; they, they get in some cases they'll get the same amount of money year on year, but they're asked to do more. There's more clients going into the service, and no extra funding. And it has really become a nightmare for a lot of the service uh, providers trying to put on the best service that they can for special needs adults and doing it while a budget with a budget that's just getting smaller and smaller every year. Anyway, we've given it a mention. We'll see if there's any other parents out there with well, some. Son daughter who attends adult services they go on the bus Uh, we're in particular looking for advice on somebody who has epilepsy now hasn't had a seizure for about six weeks or thereabouts and because of that the bus escort has been pulled what would be your advice to the mother in question here what do you think she should do 1850 333103 some of your texts uh, coming into the programme to us this morning I mentioned blood donations and that was a contact that we had from St Finber's Hospital and they're looking for people. They have a blood donor clinic going on today from half three to half seven and they're looking for people to please uh, donate and we always encourage people to please to donate. Well Sam raises an interesting point. Sam says if the blood service need blood so badly why do they age discriminate when a healthy over 70 wants to give Blood, So you can give blood up to the age of 70, but once you reach the age of 70, you're not allowed to give blood anymore, even though, as Sam says, you can be you can be as healthy in your 70s as somebody can in their 30s, 40s or 50s if you've looked after themselves. Now, I, I don't know the answer to that, Sam. I would take it it's to do with protecting the health of the over 70, even though, as you say, you can be very fit and healthy over 70. But I imagine that that's the reason that they don't accept blood from over 70s. It's to do with it's not to do with protecting the bloods that they're getting it's to do with looking after the over seventy and making sure that he or she uh, is okay. Okay, I'll look into it for you, but I don't exactly know the reason. I know we we still get some people feeling there's discrimination, seeing as you've used that word against people that lived in England, and that's all tied in with the mad cow disease. And if people lived in England for a period of time, as into the eighties and nineties, these are people who always gave blood, and suddenly they're not allowed to give blood anymore, and I know that caused a lot of upset. People who have hemochromatosis for many years, were never never allowed to give blood which i could never understand because people who have hemochromatosis their blood is very rich in iron and they have to give blood sometimes on a weekly basis in order to get their iron level down to normal and for years and years and years that blood has been taken and was being thrown away never understand that now they did, they did change the rules and regulations on that but i don't know if there's any talk of them changing the rules and regulations about over 70s being allowed to uh, give blood on sat navs sandy says the sat nav suppliers have a number of different languages the difficulty maybe is in the translation and i don't know not about google maps an iPhone, but a proper HGV sat nav system, in my opinion, are dedicated traffic instruments and they are certainly worth the cost. Sometimes roads or parts of roads are still mapped when they're actually closed off, so it's important that people driving for a living have the most up to date and the proper. Sat nav that's designed for the type of vehicle that they are driving. Thank you for that. Back to Brendan Courtney and his mum. Mary says, Why didn't Brendan Courtney's mum, Nula, let out a room, she would be able to earn fourteen thousand euro tax free. R, I wonder if she ever considered doing air B and B. It would be a stream of money coming in. That's yeah, they're two very interesting suggestions because it does. If you looked at the program last night, it does seem to be about cash flow, and that in another two years, whatever savings she has, at the rate that she's spending money, she's not going to have the savings, and it does seem to be a cash flow. Issue and that she's asset rich. And that's what Brendan was pushing her to sell the house and downsize. So that she could still be mortgage free which she is at the moment but that she would have a pot of money if she sold the house for four hundred thousand bought for 250 thousand she'd have this nest egg of hundred and fifty thousand. so there's it would be an income stream you know I think at the end of the program they did come up with this but as to when that's going to happen I don't know of subdividing the house so that she'd she would live in the bottom half and they would would rent out the top half and that certainly would give uh, an income stream but rent a room because it's a four-bedded house Uh, and she's in Dublin bearing in mind where there would be a lot of students she could wonder did she ever think of taking in uh, a student I know a friend of mine uh, in Dublin for many many years took overseas uh, students who lived with her Many, I mean I remember one day being visiting my friend and we went to see her mother and it was, she had this Chinese student who had been with her, this was the third year that the Chinese student had been with her and she only goes home once a year she's there for the full year, she's even there for Christmas gorgeous gorgeous girl and there was this lovely relationship between this elderly woman in Dublin and this young Chinese girl who was 18 or 19 at the time but she lived with her for a good uh, three years and it was wonderful it was just wonderful so yeah there are other options uh, which hopefully they have and will uh, look into West Cork says, I really enjoyed that programme last night I'm a big fan of Brendan Courtney but curious as to how much they got for doing the documentary Kind Regards well Certainly, Brendan Courtney. I mean, he's a broadcaster, so he would be getting paid. Did Nuala get paid as well? They got some holidays out of it, if nothing else. But yet they would have been paid. But I, you know, you'll never, you'll never, uh, an RTE certainly will never divulge the amount of money they would have spent on a program like that. I mean, as somebody else pointed out, that program really wasn't just to do with Brendan's mum Nuala. It was more to do with letting other people know there are options out there for people if you do find yourself in, in that sort of situation where you're in a house where you want to downsize or where you want to move out. It just looked at uh, some of the options but I just don't know how many people on their own as a widow would leave the country. I just think it could be very isolating for that person. I think as you get older I think you need to have your family, you need to have your friends and your grandchildren and, and you want to be Around them, don't you? I mean, you get into the autumn of your years, you know, you don't have that many more years left. I would be thinking that I would want to have everybody I know and love uh, around me. We spoke about vulture funds earlier on, a couple of texts in on that. Hi, Patricia, on loans to farmers and trying to stop the vulture funds. It's not all about farm families. So it'll be interesting if the government can help, as they've not helped people with this. Remember, there are families who have lost homes. God, you are so, so right on that one. Fam- families have lost homes to uh, vulture funds. And when we spoke about the vulture funds, and the banks selling on, in some cases, selling on a loan, maybe for only 20% of what the loan was worth, yet the same family might have offered 60%. And I was saying, how come that's allowed uh, to happen? Texter says, as far as I can figure out, it's the government that made those regulations. It could have been Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. They insisted that no proprietor was allowed to buy their own loan. And you could see the reasoning behind that, I suppose, because the idea would be if everybody thought they could get away with only with buying their loan for 60%, you might get defaulters deliberately defaulting in order to get uh, debt uh, forgiveness. OK, some other, there is some reaction. Oh, remember the, the woman who contacted us because her daughter phoned because her 10-year-old little girl came home from school who's really into Santa Claus. And a child and from a different nationality who was in the class had the conversation with all the other Irish children just before the midterm break telling them the... The true story about Santa Claus and I'm being careful with my language obviously because of smallies and how upset this little girl was cried herself to sleep because the mother then had to sit down and explain the true story behind Santa Claus. Maura says I was listening to the grandmother and it actually made me cry to think about that her little granddaughter of 10 and uh, Santa Claus. If the shoe was on the other foot could you imagine if her granddaughter had asked a little girl in her class why are you wearing a scarf? The teachers of the school plus the parents of the Muslim child would be on her case. Uh, we have we are living in a country where we seem to be changing all of our traditions. Remember when we mo- removed our statues and remembered the crib removed the crib from our hospitals and schools. Something is very wrong in this country. Well, I suppose the whole story behind Santa Claus isn't really tied in with religion, but I know the point you're making. It is tied in with tradition. It is is very much a tradition uh, in this country. And on disabled parking, which we did yesterday on the programme. Hi, Patricia. I am a below the knee leg amputee. Uh, But I never used the disabled parking spaces. But one day, I was parked in Bandon Town and I was five minutes over the time allocated on the parking ticket. I got fined. I went to the council office to explain that I am an MPT. The council staff um, said, sorry. Oh, I explained to the council staff that I don't have a disabled um, parking Car permit and the council staff explained sorry because you didn't have a disabled card displayed you still are going to get fined and I had to pay uh, the fine uh, yeah I. what I would suggest you do because you are an amputee you are entitled to a disabled parking permit it doesn't mean that you have to use the disabled parking space but it will mean that you wanted to pay for your parking because obviously if you're an, um, an amputee and you're obviously very mobile and and very independent and well done to you but you mightn't be as quick as getting about and that's why you're allowed to park and don't have to worry about paying for parking because it might take you longer to get back to the car and obviously that's what happened to you on that particular day. Whereas if you had a disabled parking permit, you don't have to have it up on the dash, cam of, uh, the dash of your car all the time. But for uh, cases like that where, you, where you're going to park, you don't have to pay for your parking and you, you won't be in any risk of getting a parking ticket. But you do have to apply and you do have to have your disabled parking permit and it does have to be displayed unfortunately and I know it uh, would it would seem very unfair. I would have thought that when you explained your case that you might have got away with it but um, sadly no and I suppose the council will say thems are the rules. We spoke about potholes earlier on. Michael says Patricia the potholes are coming to attention again as the winter weather rolls in. Where are the Road Safety Authority in all of this? Why are they not bringing the the county councils or the government to task? We, the motorists, have to produce our vehicles for an NCT to prove that they are roadworthy and safe to drive on the roads. Yet, the Road Safety Authority are not providing safe roads for us to drive on. The Road Safety Authority should be challenged about this and something should be done thanking you and that's from Michael in uh, Castletown Bear and we've had a kind of a wet, certainly the last 24 hours have been very very wet uh, indeed and you just kind of think we are going to see a lot more potholes and we also are hearing from people who have been complaining about potholes in the summer months saying nothing was done about those potholes and those potholes are only getting bigger and bigger as the winter weather uh, starts to set in. 1850 333 103 John Paul, taking your calls if you want to text or WhatsApp you can to 086 103
2: 103 Court Today with Breedhaven Nursing Home Mallow it's family run so your loved one will feel at home. See Breedhaven.ie See 103 Cos
5: more news.
2: Hey, it's Simon. Cork's More
3: Music Breakfast is back on the air tomorrow from 6 a.m. The best soundtrack to wake up to in Cork. Getting you through all that nasty traffic to where you need to be on time. 1,440 euro on Celebrity C's. Tell me who these three are. C. 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 And
2: all things Cork on the air tomorrow from 6. See you then. C103. This is the Cork Today replay on C103.
4: Okay, a couple of uh, texts. Uh, and when we spoke about uh, the little girl who came home from school and was a little bit upset over what uh, a, another child, a 10 year old child in the class who was a non-national decided to um, have a little chat about Santa Claus and, uh, and upset a number of people. A listener says um, a girl who originally came from Nigeria in a girls school in Carrigoline decided to take upon herself to tell all of the other girls last December. Uh, about Santa Claus and the origins of Santa Claus. These girls were all seven and eight-year-olds, including my niece, who came home bawling, crying. The schools really are going to have to start calling in the parents of the non-national children and asking them to please accept our beliefs and our culture and our traditions. What makes it worse is the girl knew exactly what she was doing. She would only have been seven or eight uh, herself. Oh God that's dreadful that is uh, dreadful and we were talking about the escorts uh, the bus escorts and in particular for special needs adult with epilepsy and the mother is just a bit nervous about the fact that the bus escort has been pulled because and the reason given was he hasn't had a seizure in so many weeks and that he seems to be okay but you never know I mean anyone who lives with epilepsy will know you never know from one day uh, to the next and I was saying the bus driver all of the bus drivers are trained and therefore the responsibility would fall on the bus driver and that's a big response for the bus driver was somebody says I heard your remarks about the bus drivers uh, who take children and adults with special needs to and from either school or their workshop or training facilities I'm a bus driver can I, let, can I tell you I received no training in fact according to the CPC models there's a strict limit to actions you can actually take other than ring the parent in fact if a cut is received on the bus, you hand the first aid kit to another person and do not put a bandage on if it's a girl and you're a male driver. I did. I was not aware of that. Again, uh, um, obviously, when I f- uh, spoke, spoke about bus drivers being uh, trained, does that vary from facility to facility? Does you see, uh, It's because all of these, I mean, the likes of the Brothers of Charity, the COPE Foundation, St. Joseph's Foundation in North Cork Coaction in West Cork, the Levana Centre, uh, Rehab Care, all of the different organisations, they all work uh, on their own. So I, I suppose all of these policies, it depends on what facility your son or daughter is going to. But, you know, I always say to people, talk to the providers, you know, tell them, tell them your concerns. And I know we, I, you hear from parents, they're afraid, they're afraid to rock the boat and all of that. But if you have any kind of concerns at all, you know, speak, speak to the providers they're only too happy in many cases I know certainly when we've got involved with various uh, providers and when we've outlined the concerns on behalf of a parent they're only too, uh, help, too happy uh, to help out and just one final one on potholes this just says who do you write to nationally example would it be the HSA to point out that some roadside bushes or potholes on the N71 and local roads in West Cork are capable of being a serious health and safety hazard. I've contacted the local council office on numerous occasions. I have rang the phone number in Cork County Council as well as the RCA office in Cork in particular about the N71 and a pothole near Roscarbury. I've done it for, I I rang them a few weeks ago. I may as well have been talking to the sheep, says somebody who just signs themselves as Jay. Have you considered contacting one of your local councillors? You've got some fantastic councillors. We have brilliant councillors right across the county, but you've got some great councillors down in West Cork, including you've got the county mayor, who I met and was speaking with on uh, Saturday night at the Cork Business uh, Awards, Patrick G- Councillor Patrick Gerard Murphy. I mean, he's the mayor of Cork County, but you've got wonderful, I mean, Kevin Murphy uh, was on earlier on in the programme. You've got... Um, Councillor Christopher O'Sullivan Declan Hurley there's lots of really really good councillors in West Cork I would suggest getting on to one of them if you're getting nowhere and you seem to be doing everything right you're getting on to Cork County Council you're getting on to the RSA office you seem to be very frustrated indeed my suggestion would be try to get on to one of your local councillors and point it out and see if they can help you out because again they're very good at doing uh, at representing local people and if something is pointed out to them they do all in their power uh, to try and get it sorted for you. So give that a try and let me know how you get on. 1850 333 103. We're speaking about suicide bereavement this week with um Councillor Joe Heffernan who uh, joins me on the program. Good afternoon to you Joe. Good afternoon. Uh, and you you are very welcome. We're going to do a piece uh, about Talking about suicide, uh, bereaved, I suppose death by, you know, to lose a loved one in any circumstances, even if it's expected, um, it, it's just hard. Bereavement is is hard. But I think death by suicide must be an overwhelming loss, Joe. An
9: overwhelming loss. And um, it leaves um, a, a huge range of emotions and, of course, so many unanswered and very often unanswerable questions Um, like why did the person do this was there not another way out and then a realization in many cases that the answers will never be found and to try and get to a place where one can accept that we're, we're just not going to know the trouble with suicide among uh, many uh, statements that one would hear about it is that um for the person who takes his or her own life the pain ends but then the pain begins for loved ones family friends um so that um there's an awful legacy of pain left
4: yeah, and I often think of you know of the people that um, that die by suicide. If they could just get a glimpse into the pain they're going to cause, I, I think many of them would have would stop and think. But at that moment, for whatever reason, their headspace is is somewhere else.
9: Yes, yes, indeed, it is. And one of the big questions, of course, that's left, one of the huge ones are, um, if not a question, um, uh, um, a searching is like, am I in some way to blame? Could I have prevented the the death? What did I not notice? But the thing is that it has been very well established um, where there was knowledge left afterwards that there's seldom any one sole reason for a death by suicide it's usually a long accumulation of uh, reasons uh, so that like the fact that the last time we met kind of that I maybe should have spoken for longer uh, the fact that um, way back there we had a bit of a row Uh, all that kind of thing the kind of things that will pass through a person's mind I mean there is never one sole reason um, so that one should if a person can at all is get away from that kind of um, blame game should I have done that Um, should I have not done this should I have said that or and should I not have said that other thing. I mean that is just um adding pain to pain and and it's it's not good. I mean even the best known experts um uh, internationally uh, acknowledge that it's almost impossible in most cases to predict a suicide.
4: Yeah.
9: Um and these people are involved in that particular area and uh, you know it has become accepted uh, wisdom, accepted knowledge that it's well nigh impossible uh, to predict
4: I remember talking with uh, a lady who uh, lo- who lost her husband uh, through suicide and she spoke about being stuck in her grief because she was so angry with him
9: and and what could be more um, normal? Um, uh, I mean, anger is a part of grieving anyway. Whether a person, um, as you say, uh, had a long illness and died, or whether a person died because they were old, but anger is a part of uh, of of grieving.
4: Of, of no, of if there can be normal grieving, but yeah, it's it's not just a part of uh, grieving. From suicide, it's 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 uh, all people who grieve will go through a phase of yes. but I just remember her saying to me because yeah. it was about three years after her, she had lost her husband and she just said I'm stuck I just think I'm stuck and I remember we, we spoke about had she gone for counselling and she hadn't and she did and, and, and as I say the rest is history he, the, the counsellor she went to she managed to move her she just said she needed a push just, yeah. to, just to get past it somebody Tim says saw a lovely post la- lately people who die by suicide do not want to end their Lives. They want to end the pain. The pain yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's so true. Yeah. Uh, now, talking, talking about about getting counselling. Some people are great to talk about their loss, aren't they? But it, but for others, they might not want to talk about it at all.
9: Absolutely. The, the, you have doors to extremes. Some people will will talk uh, quite a lot um, following uh, the suicide about you know um, the past and he did this or she did that and he said this and she said that and there would be a lot of that and maybe looking at photographs um, and reminiscing about life uh, uh, the life of the person especially and um, others will be uh, not uh, will just be sort of silent and um, very possibly um, processing their own grief in a different way And as we've often said before um, here, that, um, I mean, there's no right way and there's no wrong way to grieve. Mm. Um, It's very individual. But there are certain kind of what we will call generalities that can be uh, applied. For example, at first, like, there's, there's numbness, there's shock, there's denial. And we often hear denial often gets a very bad press but maybe a person needs to be in denial for a while um, to uh, to sort of um, uh, to be able to deal with the immediate aftermath you see one of the things that we might not think of is that in a bereavement uh, after a suicide uh, as against bereavement um, in the illness and things like that you have Gardi involved. we'll talk more about that next week. And yeah. You have a poor you have a coroner, a poor mortem and a coroner. So there's a lot of kind of, if you'd like to call it state involvement, official involvement, which uh, doesn't apply usually in grieving, and that's very, very, very difficult to deal with. There's things like um a person can feel um shame, uh, like oh how did this happen to us? A person can feel that they don't want to um uh talk about it, share it with with others as one would in a in a more um usual kind of uh, Yeah, if briefing. somebody
4: just had a heart attack you'd all be talking about it. Yeah, and and yeah. let's be honest, families have hid the fact that they lost a loved one to suicide. Say that
9: again, families Fa- have... Families
4: have hid the fact. Oh, indeed. And particularly if it's an older person, they, you know, rather than say, you know, we lost, you know, granddad or dad or mum or whatever, uh, through suicide, they'll cover up and say something else.
9: Yes, and I mean, I don't want to... I wouldn't dream of opening old wounds, but I mean... You know, I I remember reading in the Sunday Independent where a family, um, where there was um, a tragedy with with his son, um, you know, and um, there was one story came out, and then about a week later, there was a different story came out, and, um, you know, it was uh, an an extremely well-known family, uh... and... um, I mean how how terribly terribly awfully tough must that be I mean um
4: uh if families I, want to keep that th- that information to themselves then they should be allowed to
9: I would think so of yeah, course yeah. I mean there's there's what we'll call private grief and a person is entitled to privacy in 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 their grief and there will be those um very close who will um share with uh, with those people, and maybe a person would go for professional help, which is confidential but like um yeah um uh, uh, i i mean we 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 are all entitled to our privacy yeah yeah um, uh we'll talk about it in uh, maybe next week or or soon anyway next week if we can um you know about the things like um telling children yeah. and things like that okay well, a couple
4: of couple of checks in in on this um somebody says it is said that a lot of people. Uh, who lose their lives to, to, through suicide because they feel that their loved ones will be better off without them. This is a life changing phase, uh, which my son, a phrase which my son sent to me at a time when I was feeling very low. My son sent me the following text. He said, remember, ma'am, that suicide does not end the pain. It just passes it on.
9: Well, that is so well put and that yeah. is so true. Yeah. so eloquently put and
4: here's here's somebody looking for advice um, Joe. my daughter is going to school with somebody who's been diagnosed with depression um, with suicidal thoughts they continuously text her to say that they have these thoughts she's obviously in a group with other girls she tells the other the other young girls that she needs to talk to a professional, but she's bringing my daughter down with her and she always seems to send these texts late at night when she's getting these suicidal thoughts. What do we as parents do?
9: That's a real tough one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, off the top of my head, uh, I would be inclined to maybe talk parent to parent mm. and to say, you know, uh Maybe they don't realize that these texts are going out from their, obviously, late at night, from their own home. And um, it's not doing the other girl any good. Um, it's it's bringing her down. And, uh, I, I mean, uh, silence won't get anything done in, in that situation. My own take on it would be, I'd be inclined to think, as I say now, I mean, uh, off the top of my head, I'd be inclined to say parent to parent yeah. to have a chat.
4: Because the fact that this girl has had a diagnosis, it means she's been to a doctor or she's been to professionals, so she's in the system.
9: Yeah. yeah. And and another thing that I would say is that, like, in my own experience down through the years, that um, suicidal thoughts and the act of suicide are planets apart. Yeah. Um, You know... Uh,
4: yeah, but you don't want the, the other young girls don't realise that and they're obviously very they worried. They they're, don't. They're they very, think that maybe very,
9: it's imminent. Yeah. Um, I would also um, say that, you know, the likes of Peter House, um, maybe to make contact and um, to, to get another opinion as to um, what, what, what do you think we should do here.
4: Mm. But, um, I mean, those teenage girls need, they need advice as to how they handle a friend who is they do.
9: depressed in a, in a big, and, big yeah, way. Yeah. And apparently, um, um, uh, I just heard um, a few minutes ago that um, that there's uh, a report, um, a European report, I hope I don't add to stress for anyone, but that, um, that Ireland has a very high rate of um, suicide of girls.
4: Yeah, I heard about it early this morning. It's, yeah. an, it's a report that's coming out today. I think it's getting launched today. Yeah. It's, it's a very worrying one, that's for sure. Yeah. Okay, we're going to leave it there. We'll come back to this topic. As I can see, there's a lot of interest in it. We'll come back to this topic again next week. In the meantime, Joe, have a lovely week. And uh, thanks as always for joining us. That's Joe and Joe can be contacted at 029 76617. That's where I leave you for today. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon. And we're back with you tomorrow morning for the midweek edition of the programme. At 10 Until then, I'm Patricia Messenger. A very good afternoon.
2: Court today with Breedhaven Nursing Home Mallow. It's family run, so your loved one will feel at home. See breedhaven.ie. C103.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more.